We invite you to turn to Psalm 31. <clears throat> As we continue our series in kind of the second half of the first book of the Psalter. So by my count, we have about 10 or so left, including this one, before we get to uh, the end of book one, where we will uh, go elsewhere in the Bible. But we come to Psalm 31. And though it seemed a little bit scatterbrained, it's the longest one we've been in uh, for a while, longer than any of the other ones we've looked at so far the last few weeks. It seems a little bit scatterbrained. I don't think it is. I don't think it's actually uh, kind of a machine gun approach to God. Instead, I think you can boil it down to something very simple. I think the overall message of this psalm is rather uh, not too tricky to figure out. It's this. Here it is. The Lord can be trusted to preserve his people. The Lord can be trusted to preserve his people through many dangers and toils and snares. So let's see that. Let's see that as we come to David we come to his words, we're told this is to the choir master, which is a good reminder that these psalms were sung. One of the reasons we sing psalms in church, like we did this morning, is because they are songs. They're not just prayers. They were publicly sung. They were not just private prayers in the prayer closet. They were public church worship hymns. And so we read this psalm. It's of David. We begin in verse 1. Let's hear the word of the king of kings and the word of King David. He writes, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me. A strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they've hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I'll rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you've seen my affliction. You've known the distress of my soul. You've not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You've set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I'm in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like ones who is dead. I've become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you. O Lord, I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, 
which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I'd said in my alarm, I'm cut off in your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades. This word does neither, but it endures forever. Let's pray and ask God's enduring word to endure in our hearts tonight. Oh, Father, into your hands we commit our spirits. Into your love we commit ourselves. Into your knowledge we give our minds. We ask that you would strengthen us by this word, as you did, David. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ these things. Amen. So as I mentioned, this is kind of a... uh, a longer psalm. It's a longer psalm. It's, it maybe appears to be a bit of a scatterbrained psalm only because David, as he's almost always been the last few psalms, he, he, he's facing a lot of issues. He's facing a lot of problems. We, we, again, we don't know when this was. There's no real clue in the text. But one of the funny things about this psalm is that for some reason it's picked up on by quite a few other folks in the Bible. Jeremiah quotes it. Maybe you recognize in verse 5. Jesus Christ himself quotes these words, into your hand I commit my spirit. It's all across the pages of scripture. There's even a reference, we'll look at it uh, in a few minutes, there's a reference here uh, to the uh, benediction of Aaron. May your face shine on your servant, verse, uh, verse 16. It's a quotable psalm. Why is it so quotable? I think it's quotable because it gives us four things to know about King David and four things to know about ourselves. Don't worry. That doesn't mean we have eight points. They're the same four things. It's all right. Same four things. First, first we see here, the first eight verses, one to eight, David talks about his position. He talks about his position. He says he, he has a lot of issues. He, he needs refuge. He needs help. But he's really confident in these verses. He's, he's very up, if you will, on God. Uh, Just listen to how he talks about God. Lord, you're my refuge. I take refuge in you. Be a rock. Verse two, he said this. Be that rock. And then look at verse three. You are my rock. Go back to verse two. Be a strong fortress. Verse three, you are my fortress. You see what he's doing here? He's saying, be what you already are. Be what I know you to be. Be what you're actually doing already. His point simply is that God... You've been my refuge. I know you've done this in the past. I even know you're doing it right now, no matter how hard things are. He says, you are my protector. You're my protector. And then he moves on in verse 5 and verse 6. He says, I trust in you. I trust in the Lord. Verse six, I trust in the Lord. And the sense there is helped by what he 
opposes it in the first part of verse 6. His trust in the Lord is the opposite of what? It's the opposite of people who pay regard to worthless idols. So what does that mean about David's trust in the Lord? What's he saying there? He's saying, you're really God. You're the real deal. He says, I believe in no fake God. I'm not just playing the game of Christianity. I'm not just playing the religious game. I trust my real God. And why does he trust that real God? In part because of what he says in verse 5. I can commit my soul. I can give my entire life over to you, God, as Christ does on the cross when he's dying, because you have redeemed me, because, Lord, you are the faithful God. You see the point? He knows what God has done in the past. He knows what God has done in the past. And that means he can trust in the real God, no matter what other people are saying or doing. He knows your hand holds my life, God. And that impacts his actual belief. That's why in verse 7, he can say, I will be glad in your steadfast love because you have known the distress of my soul. You see what David's saying? He's saying, you're a real God because you're not standoffish. You're a real God because you've gotten down and dirty. You're a real God because you've looked on my affliction. You're a real God because you are Though you are I am, though you are Yahweh, though you are the God of Exodus 3, I am that I am, you look upon your people's anguish. Isn't that what God says to Moses in Exodus 3? Why am I calling you, Moses? Because I've heard my people's cry. I've heard the cry of my people in in Egypt, and I will deliver them. God is not a clinical God. You know, when you go to the doctor, some, some doctors are very clinical. And I say, well, you have this disease. And you say, I don't understand any of the words you just used. And they're English words, but you don't know what they mean because they don't sound like they're English words. They're medical words. And then you look it up on the Internet and you realize it's, it's way worse than you thought it was. It just sounded so clinical. It sounded so standoffish. God's not like that. He gets his hands dirty with your diseases. He gets his hands dirty with your troubles. And then he says, really finally in verse 8, in this first section, you make me a stable person. I'm not unstable when I'm with you. You've set my feet in a broad place. That's a weird language for us, but it simply means you give me a really good stance. You've given me a really solid stance. One of the things about hitting... Many, many golf balls over the course of my uh, 30 some odd years on this earth is that I've learned the importance of a stance in golf. If you have a bad, unbalanced stance when you're hitting a golf ball, that golf ball is not going to go in a good place. You may not even hit it. You may, horror of horrors, shank the golf ball, which is almost a curse word on the golf course. It's a very bad shot. One of the solutions is always to make sure you have a good stance. You have a solid base. I'm sure the same thing is true in many other sports. But what God is saying here, what David's saying here is, God, you've given me a solid base so that when the enemies attack, I can't be moved. 
That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 when he speaks about being moved by every wind or wave of doctrine. He says part of the purpose of the church is to help you attain to mature manhood, to be a real man. A lot of talking these days about what a real man is in the church. One of the ways the Bible displays to us real manhood is that it says you're mature in Christ. You're mature in Christ. That means the doubts, that means the slings, that means the arrows, that means the attacks of the evil one. They don't trip you up all the time. You have a broad stance. You have a stable God. So what is he saying here? Why is David doing all this? Why is he rehearsing, God, you're real. God, you're strong. God, uh, you protect me. Uh, God, you've redeemed me. Why is he rehearsing all of this? Do you know what buyer's remorse is? You know what buyer's remorse is? I've had it happen occasionally. I don't like it. You buy a new book, a new comic book. You buy a new dress. You buy a a new Lego set. And then you're wondering, is it actually that good? I mean, the, the, the people on the internet say it's really good, but is it actually that good? And my friend said that car is a really good car. But what if it's not a good car? What if it has a hidden defect that I just can't figure out? You're worried about it. You're worried. I I, I spent the money on it. Is it worth what I spent it on? Maybe they they got you. Maybe they got you and they took you for a ride and they just tricked you and you way overpaid. Buyer's remorse. So when you have buyer's remorse, what do you do? What do you do? You can't sell it again. You, You bought it. You got it. You can't just take the money back. What do you do? You go online and you talk to your friends and you get them to tell you all the good reasons why you bought it in the first place. Or better yet, you start pacing around your your dining room and you start repeating to yourself, this is why I bought it. This is why it's amazing. This is why those Legos are the best Legos ever. This is why that dress looks beautiful. You, You put the dress on, you look in the mirror, you say, wow, it's really good. You convince yourself that you didn't overpay for it. Now, in some ways, that can be a little silly. Sometimes that works on human level. This is no dress we're talking about here. This is no Lego set. We're talking here about God and you in real trouble. And David is saying, when you're in real trouble, what are you to do? You are to rehearse the real, solid, not made up, not fake, not overselling promises that God has. David is saying, in my need, look at what I have. I have God. Look at the position I have. He gives me a strong, a broad stance. Look at the refuge I have. He is my rock. He is my fortress. He is not a worthless idol. I didn't overpay for Jesus. Isn't that your fear? That's what your friends tell you. They tell you, you are foolish for coming to church. You're foolish for investing so much in Jesus. It's not worth, he's not worth the price. He's not worth the cost of discipleship. I mean, you could be doing all sorts of other things. You could be having an extravagant, wonderful Sunday evening meal. You could be playing with Legos. You could be trying on dresses or whatever it is you like to do. The only reason you would be here is if God actually is real. It's if he actually is your supply, your fortress, your protection, your strong tower. So I guess the question is, do you do this when you're tempted? Do you do this when the doubts arise? Do you do this when the people say, no, you're a fool. 
Do you do this when you're ill? Do you rehearse the goodness of God? So much of, the, so much of Christianity is simply these first eight verses. Oh, we have three other points, don't worry. But so much of Christianity is simply rehearsing to yourself who God is. But David does go on, so we have to go on. Secondly, we see not just the position of David, but the real distress of David. The real This is the problem section. It's verse 9 to verse 13. This, these, these stanzas here. He gets really intense with his problems. And he starts by describing them in verse 9 and verse 10 really as physical, emotional, spiritual exhaustion. He says, exhaustion has hit me. Just listen to his words. Verse 9. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. Literally, maybe groaning better, but you get the picture. My strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. You see, twice he says he's wasting away. He's dying. He's drowning. The distress, the anguish, he has been physically devastated. You know, this happens in relationships, right? This happens, really? This happens to us. His body, his bones, they are cracking and creaking. His soul is emaciated. You can just, the, the picture here in verse 10, my life is spent with sorrow. You can maybe paraphrase that as saying, my best friend is sadness. My best companion is sorrow. My years with sighing, <sighs> that's just his life. One big sigh. Do you feel the psalm? This is one of the reasons why the psalms are so powerful, because they're raw. Do you understand that? There's no touching up. This is not a uh, computer-generated, you know, beautiful picture of King David. This is not even some artwork like the, the Romans had. This is not some prettified, dolled-up David. This is the real, raw, unfiltered deal. This is the distress of David. He takes no shortcuts. And then, of course, the end of verse 10, he says it's not just physical stress. It's not just emotional issues. He says it's because of my sin. My iniquity plays its own part in here. He says it's all of that mixed together in one awful stew. And it gets worse. He's looking on the inside. He's looking at himself. And then he turns in the last three, uh, verse 11 to verse 13, he turns to other people. He says there's... Uh, Social exclusion. They're adversaries. He has the status of a corpse. There's psychological intimidation. Verse 13, I hear the whisper. And so inside, outside, all around him and his very bones, his very body is breaking up. This is nasty, vicious, doesn't get much worse than this. And yet, what is that? Remember what we're doing here. Recall what this is. It is a prayer. Don't forget that. This is not just a description. It's not just poetry. This is a prayer. He is speaking to God about all of this. You are simply a bug on the wall listening to David's prayer. 
Do you see how free he is to tell God? Do you have that same freedom when you pray? Do you have this level of freedom? Do you feel this level of freedom? Do you pour out your soul before the Lord in prayer like this? Now, notice that David's not getting coarse here. He's not, you know, using, uh, you know, base language. He's being real, but he's not being profane. He's being honest, but honesty does not mean you just uh, curse up a storm with Pete, with God, or with people, for that matter. Rather, he can be honest about the issues because he knows his privilege to pour himself out before the Lord in prayer. So do you do that? I mean, that's a simple test. The Christian who knows her position before God should feel the freedom to be this raw with him. Because he's not going to abandon you. He's not going to uh, forget you. He's not going to bail on you because you were a little bit too honest. You can't be more honest than God. He knows it already. He knows it all. You can't be more honest than he is. Like Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, you can give all your needs to the Lord. We sing it, don't we? Take it to the Lord in prayer. But do we take it to the Lord in prayer? That's the question. First, position. Second, distress. Third, verse 14 to verse 20, David turns here to look at his resources he has. He he has this devastating distress. What's his response going to be? Verse 14 really is the key in the whole psalm. Verse 14 is the middle, the midpoint of the psalm. It's the key verse in the whole psalm. There's always, almost always a, a verse like this. I'll read it. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. In the Hebrew, even in the English, you can see it there. The I is emphatic. The personal pronoun is put in first place. I But I, no matter all the muck, no matter all the issues, no matter all of my sadness, my exhaustion, my isolation, my illness, my stress, I, I trust in you, O Lord. And then look at what he says. He has resilient faith. And then he says, you are my God. Now, this is kind of language you would pass over. Well, of course he says he's just God. Oh, that's a good Christian. This is what a good King David does. No, 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 no. Don't pass it over. Don't pass it over. You have to realize that this phrase, you are my God, is actually part. It's the response to a previous implicit statement. It's a response to a conversation. It's part of a conversation that's already been happening. It's It's... The response given in that classic covenant statement that you see all throughout the Old Testament. You look at it in a place like Genesis 17, where the Lord says, I shall maintain my covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. You see, David is responding and saying, you're my God. And the only way he can respond and say, you're my God, is because God has come to him and said, you're my David first. You're mine first. The great Scottish theologian, Donald MacLeod, puts it like this. 
when he uh, comments on Genesis 17, he says, what does it mean, I will be your God? Here's his comment. It means that God is saying to Abraham, I will be for you. I will exist for you. I will exercise my godness for you. I will be committed to you. And then the cloud says this. There's no way that can be improved upon. There is no more glorious promise, not in Romans, not in Hebrews, not in Revelation, not in John's gospel, not in the upper room, nowhere. Those words of the Abrahamic covenant have never been excelled and never will. I will be your God. Therefore, David can say, you are my God. I will be your God. God promises to you. Therefore, you can reply in the great moment of stress, you are my God. It's like 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. I mean, that's one reason among many why we allow God to have the first word in our worship. He calls us to worship and we respond in conversation to him. We respond in praise. He calls us and we respond. And so it is in your life. You recognize that any desire you have to pray to God, he's already put into you. He is calling on you to respond to him. And then notice where David goes with this. After the turning point, what does he say? Verse 15, my times are in your hand. Now, when he talks about times, he's not talking about simply his life, his lifespan. He's saying all of the circumstances, all of the things I face, all the kaleidoscope of people and issues that come up every day, every week, forever. Calvin says this on the word time, that plural, of course, my times He says, David uses this to mark the variety of casualties by which the life of man is usually harassed. Or to put it in simple English, all the muck you live through, all the issues you live through, all the ways of verse 9, your eye wasting from grief, adversaries against you. David can say, My times are in your hand. And yet, this is not some kind of fatalistic claim. You know, those kind of bad Calvinists, the the Calvinists say, hey, whatever's going to happen is going to happen to me. I just won't do anything. Now, what does David then say? Because my times are in your hand, because I'm a good Calvinist, here's what I'm going to pray next. Rescue me. Rest, deliver me, God. Do something now. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Because my times are in your hand, use your hand to do something, God. Deliver me. The great uh, reformer Ulrich Zwingli was uh, sick one day in August 1519. The plague was coming to town and It got him. He was staring death in the face. He was sick. He was confined to bed. He prayed these words to God. Do as you will, for I lack nothing. I am your vessel to be restored or destroyed. Do as you will. I lack nothing. That's simply David right here. My times are in your hand. 
You can rest there even in the plague. And yet David does not stop there. He goes on, verse 16. He implies that he can expect God's grace in his plague-like situation. He, he quotes this, the classic benediction. We'll probably use it tonight. We often use it in the evening service these days. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is that benediction. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. David had heard, I mean, I'm sure David heard this when he went to the temple, the tabernacle. It's what the priests use all the time. He heard those words. And now in the thick of trouble, he asked God to activate those words, to make them work in his life, to smile upon him, to be gracious to him, to save him. I mean, isn't that how God's used your church life? You come to church. You've come to plenty of church services, probably more than you may want to sometimes. But you've come to plenty of church services over your life. And you hear all sorts of standard Christian words. You hear all sorts of standard Bible verses until that one day where that standard Christian word, that standard Bible verse, it comes alive for you. I mean, you hadn't, you, you'd heard it a thousand times. Meaningless, virtually. It shouldn't have been, but it was, if you're honest. And then one day, in that great moment, God smiles upon you, and that verse, that Meaning that theme, that part of the gospel of Jesus Christ became activated. Maybe it's a clip from a faithful hymn. In every change, he faithful will remain. Maybe it is the benediction. Something from the sanctuary fortifies us in the darkness. And then... In verse 19 and verse 20, David revels in the riches of God. You know, David's tallying up what he has in God. He's kind of making the little marks, the tally marks of what God's give, given him. And so he, he burst out in verse 19, how abundant, how abundant your goodness is. He erupts, he delights in God's goodness. And notice how he talks about it in verse 19. How abundant is your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Last week, our pets were uh, looking at the window very intently. They were looking up at the window very intently. I had to go see what was happening. It was, of course, two squirrels. What were they doing? They were trying to get some food. They were squirreling away food because it was cold. It's a picture here of what God is doing. Verse 19, God has squirreled away. That's not the Hebrew. That's my personal translation. God has squirreled away his goodness for those who fear him. To put it differently, David is saying that God has secret treasures that you don't even know about. God has secret goodness that you're not aware of right this moment, but they're ready to use on your behalf. It's what Christ says, isn't it? That 
store up treasures for yourself, squirrel away treasures for yourself in heaven, not on earth. Because if you store up treasures on earth, they're going to waste away. But if you copy, if you imitate God in his goodness and God in his goodness is squirreling away treasures for you. Well, David's point is that there's so much more than you expect from God, that God blows your expectations of him out of the water regularly. Secret riches waiting to be put on display. In other words, one of the things you need to know in your trials and your temptations and your difficulties is that no matter how poor you feel, no matter how down and out you may feel, you are not left impoverished. You are not left impoverished even in secret worst troubles. God has already put provisions in place. During the Second World War, there was a farmer over in England. He was a Christian farmer. He sent some money to a kind of uh, uh, scripture gift mission organization, some much more Christian organization. And he was apologizing to them. He wrote in a little letter to them, I wish I could do more, but the problem is we don't have water on the farm, so the harvest wasn't great. And he said, I'm really scared. I need your prayers because the Germans are, are you know, flying over and the bombs are falling. And just pray that we would not die. The staff member at the Scripture Gift Mission replied, for some reason, I don't know why, that, that they couldn't ask God that no bombs would fall on his land. I don't know why he couldn't pray that, but that's what he wrote. <clears throat> but he did pray. He said, we'll pray for you that God's will in the matter would prevail. The farmer got the reply, and about a month or so later, a huge German bomb crashed down in his place. But it was a dud. Didn't go off. Nobody was injured. And the bomb went so deep in the ground that it uncovered a hidden submerged stream, a hidden supply of water. It kept flowing. It provided the water he needed. It provided water for his neighbors. Of course, you know what happened. Next year, he sent a larger donation to the Scripture Gift Mission. It's a picture. It's a picture, simply a picture of God's secret supplies, God's secret resources stashed away, even in German bombs. Finally, and briefly, David concludes the psalm by giving testimony to God. First, in verse 21, he tells how God has been so good. He has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. He says, I was scared, but you were not. I, was, I said in my alarm, I'm cut off. You don't see me. I was scared, but you intervened. And then he concludes in the last two verses. He says, he gives a demand. He says, y'all need to love the Lord. He concludes with this command. Y'all need to love the Lord. You see his argument? If you have the kind of God who's been this good and this faithful, we need to love him. Look at what he's done for me. Y'all need to love him. This is basic, ground level, 101 Christianity. Love the Lord because he loved you first. The old Presbyterian preacher, Donald Gray Barnhouse, was uh, once 
<clears throat> over in Tokyo on some some flight. He it was at the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. He talked to a gal at one of uh, the, the hotel desks, at the concierge, I guess, and she was a very fluent, cultured gal. She spoke Chinese and Japanese and English. And uh, he asked her, are you a Christian? She told him she was a Buddhist. He asked, uh, have you heard of Jesus Christ? She says, I've heard this book. There's the Bible. It's the holy book of Christians. I've heard about Jesus. I've not read it, though. I don't know anything about it. Then Dr. Barnhouse asked her, do you love Buddha? Since you're a Buddhist, right? Do you love Buddha? She says, love. <laughs> love has no connection to religion. That's not what, that's not, that's not, that's not what Buddha is there for. Do you know that the religion of this God, the religion of your God, the religion of your good God, the God who protects, the God who preserves you, the God who provides, the God of the good, that is about loving him. This psalm is not a detached, does not present you with a detached Buddha. Rather, here we see what our God's like. And here the psalm ends by saying, do you love me? Do you love me? It's a question Christ asked his disciples. Do you love me? At the end of it all, when you see all that I've done, when you see all of your difficulty, when you see all the resources I have deployed on your behalf, do you love me? And that's the question we face. Surely we ought to pray that we would have more love. More love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. Let's pray. A Father of lights, we know there is every good and perfect gift that comes from you, that there's no shadow of turning. You're not uh, tricking us when you give us your word. Instead, Lord, you show us yourself simply, plainly, truly, clearly. You give us your very goodness. You don't hide who you are. May pray that as we see your goodness, as we see our despair, our great need, we would hear and love. We would respond with love to you this week, love to our neighbor this week, that you would make us a people who trust in the Lord, who say you are my God, because you have called us yours first. And I pray this by your spirit and in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.